The following is a teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how you can join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org. So good. So good. Those of you here in the room and then also those of you who are joining us online, we are really glad that you're here, as Brian said. Um, as I mentioned last week, we're continuing to see more folks join us each week online than here in person in the room. And, and we're thrilled that you're with us, but we, we believe that um, while worship experience online is a wonderful supplement to our life of worship, it's a terrible replacement for it. And we would love to have you here with us. So we're glad that you're here, but we hope that you consider joining us, being here with us next week as we continue in this sermon series uh, called More of You. And if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to that passage we started with last week, Matthew chapter 11. We're going to begin again from Matthew 11 this morning. But as we get started, um, I, uh, I wonder if you know that the course of Western history was changed um, on July 2nd, 1505, because of a thunderstorm in Germany. Like literally... The course of Western history was changed on July the 2nd, 1505, because of a thunderstorm in Germany. A young student was uh, traveling. He had visited his his family, was traveling back to where he was studying, and and he got caught in a thunderstorm. And and, and this young man, this student studying to become a lawyer, as he's there in this thunderstorm, the the lightning is striking around him, and he's terrified and thinks he's going to die. And so he cries out in fear and he says, St. Anne, he cries out to to Mary's mother, St. Anne, help me, I'll become a monk, right? The whole idea is if if you get me out of this mess, I promise I won't become a lawyer, I'll become a monk. And sure enough, he survived and just a few weeks later, he left the study of law and entered into a monastery. And 12 years later, on October 31st, 1517, that monk, Martin Luther, nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the Catholic Church in Wittenberg, beginning the Reformation. Today, October 31st, is not just Halloween, it's Reformation Day. This is the 504th anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. And Protestant Christians around the world recognize this day as the beginning of that movement, but it all began with a thunderstorm. And of all of the really important truths that were recovered through the Protestant Reformation, to to, to the rediscovery of the truth of the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But, But among all of those great truths recovered in the Reformation, one of the most important ones is what is referred to as the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. The priesthood of all believers. And among other things, what it means is that, that, that we who are believers in Jesus don't have to go through a priest to get to God. That we have direct access to God himself. That because of the priesthood of all believers, that, that, that we have unmediated access to God. That, that we don't have to go to a priest. We don't have to pray someone else's words to pray to God. That we can go directly to God in prayer. That, that uh, ironically, given the Luther story, we don't have to intercede through the saints, but that we have direct access to God. Part of the beautiful truth of the priesthood of all believers is that because of the work of Jesus, he's made possible for us a personal, even intimate relationship with God. But I think that on this Reformation Day, 
that at least for some of us, it's important for us to acknowledge that while we may affirm that truth, some of us at least struggle, if not outright fail, to live in it. That we might affirm the truth that because of the work of Jesus, we have the opportunity for a direct, personal, and even intimate relationship with God. And yet, for many of us, we fail to actually live in that reality because we fail to carve out space in our lives, to disengage from the chaos of our lives, to truly meet God in the quiet place, to truly develop that personal, even intimate relationship with him. As we mentioned this morning, we're continuing in our sermon series called More of You. And and, and the the significance of that title is on the one hand to to say to Jesus, Jesus, I want more of you in my life. I, I want more of your heart. I want more of your character formed in me. But the flip side of that truth is you only get more of him as he gets more of you. As you open yourself to him more and more, as you allow him into those places in your life that you sometimes keep to yourselves. This is, as we've said, basically a series on spiritual formation. And and we, the very first week of the series, offered a simple little definition of spiritual formation. It's that deep interchange whereby we become more like Jesus and therefore more like our true selves. That, That as we experience this deep, interchange, the the biblical language is metamorphosis, that we become more like Jesus, the one who has saved us, and and therefore we become more and more like the person that God has made us to be. We launched the series with that great passage from Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Paul says, I urge you therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. And this is your reasonable service of worship. Do not be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And from that little passage, we kind of developed a bit of a model for spiritual formation. We said spiritual formation is this interchange that happens as the Holy Spirit changes us, as we embrace Jesus' vision of reality, engage in a set of formative embodied practices in the context of community. It happens as the spirit changes because we can't change ourselves. We can't transform ourselves. But it happens as we embrace Jesus' vision of reality, the renewing of our minds, and engage in a set of formative spiritual practices, the rhythms of a missionary disciple. And in the context of community, that, that, that we won't find real transformation in our deepest areas of struggle apart from a community of fellow strugglers. And over the course of these weeks now, we're exploring each of these formative practices, the rhythms of a disciple of Jesus. And this morning we come to the practice of prayer. And more specifically this morning, I want to talk about the practice of prayer in the context of silence and solitude. Look with me there at the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11, beginning in verse 28. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest 
for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And last week we talked about that invitation from Jesus as an invitation to discipleship. That this is a rabbi speaking to those that he's invited to become his disciples. And that metaphor of a yoke that Jesus uses is a common first century metaphor for a a rabbi and the disciple. The, The disciple is attached to the rabbi by taking on his yoke. His yoke representing his unique teaching of the scriptures and his way of life. So last week we talked about part of taking on the yoke of Jesus is that we as followers of him want to have the same kind of relationship to scripture that Jesus had. But we want to take it one step further this week to say it's not just Jesus' unique teaching of the scripture, but also Jesus' unique way of life. You see, for those of us who follow Jesus, he's our savior, but he's not just our savior. He's our teacher, but he's not just our teacher. He is also our model That we don't just listen to what he says, but we watch what he does. And one of the things that's most characteristic of the lifestyle of Jesus is a pattern of withdrawing from the busyness and chaos of life and ministry to cultivate an intimate relationship with the Father in the context of silence and solitude. You see it over and over and over again in the Gospels. Jesus doesn't necessarily teach on silence and solitude. He teaches silence and solitude by his very way of life. In Mark chapter 1, you see the beginning, the launch of Jesus' public ministry. And from the very beginning, Jesus is getting all kinds of attention because they're seeing this man and recognizing that he's teaching as one who has authority like they've never seen before. Authority not only in the way he teaches, but also authority demonstrated in his power for um, doing miracles. But, but right there in the first chapter of Mark, we, we see these words. Mark chapter 1, verse 35. Mark says, Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and he left the house and he went off to a solitary place where he prayed. You see it all over the place in, the, in Luke's gospel as well. Uh, Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 5, verse 16. Uh, this is, again, as Luke is describing all these people who are flocking to Jesus, to see Jesus, to hear Jesus. And Luke says, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. That solitary place from the gospel of Mark, lonely place translated here in the gospel of Luke. Sometimes the same word gets translated as wilderness. It is this idea of Jesus withdrawing, pulling away from the the busyness and the chaos of life and ministry to cultivate an intimate relationship with the Father. And so we who are followers of Jesus, we need silence and solitude. Think about it for a second. Jesus knew he needed this. Right? That, that there were people flocking to him all the time. And in the context of one of these stories, the, the disciples look for him everywhere. And say, Jesus, everybody's looking for you. And I know how I would respond if everybody was looking for me. Right? I'd, I'd want to present myself to the everyone who's looking for me. And yet Jesus refrains from doing that. Jesus protects, even has to get up early or sometimes stay up late to protect the context of his silence and solitude. Jesus knew that he needed Silence and solitude. And let's be honest, we, 
we often don't really think about Jesus needing much of anything. And yet Jesus knew he needed silence and solitude. So the question then is, what makes us think it's any different for us? We need that quiet place, that quiet time to cultivate our relationship with God. The Lord spoke through the prophet Isaiah to the Old Testament people of God. And he talked about this very reality. And yet their uh, consistent uh, rejection of actually entering into that place of quietness and rest. In Isaiah chapter 30 verse 15. We read this is what the sovereign Lord the Holy One of Israel says. Get this. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength, but you would have none of it. The the place you find um, salvation, the place that you find strength is in quietness and trust. And yet, just like the people of the Old Testament, so often we fail to enter in. So I think the questions that we need to wrestle with is, is why is that true? For those of us for whom it's true in our lives, why is it that we don't enter into the quiet place, that we don't enter into silence and solitude to, to, to commune with God there? And I think the first reason for, for that is that we live in a very busy, noisy world, right? The, the external noise of our lives. Um, we live in a busy, distracted, noisy world. The, the uh, African theologian and cardinal uh, Robert Caldwell Sarah says it this way in his beautiful book, The Power of Silence. Listen to this. He says, our world no longer hears God because it is constantly speaking at devastating speed and volume in order to say nothing. Modern civilization does not know how to be quiet. It holds forth an unending monologue. From morning to evening, from evening to morning, silence no longer has any place at all. The noise tries to prevent God himself from speaking. In this hell of noise, man disintegrates and is lost. He's broken up into countless worries, fantasies, and fears. In order to get out of this, these depressing tunnels, he desperately awaits more noise so that it will bring him a few consolations. Noise is a deceptive, addictive, and false tranquilizer. The tragedy of our world is never better summed up than in the fury of senseless noise that stubbornly hates silence. And then the punchline. This age detests the things that silence brings to us encounter wonder and kneeling before God contemplative silence is a fragile little flame in the midst of a raging ocean the fire of silence is weak because it is bothersome to a busy world does that resonate with anybody else's experience in here this world is busy and noisy, and we get pulled into it, and we fail to pull out of it to create that space to meet with God. Um, I have a friend, a, a former colleague at Dallas Seminary, Dr. Michelle Picorni, 
And Michelle is an expert on burnout. If you can have an expert on burnout in your life, I highly recommend it. It's a good, a good thing to have. And uh, Michelle, when she talks about um, our, our failure to enter into silence and solitude, she suggests that there are kind of three main preoccupations that many of us have that keep us from entering into silence and solitude. They are contribution, consumption, and control. I wonder if anybody else feels the twinge of conviction just hearing those words. Contribution, consumption, and control. Contribution, that, that we become so preoccupied with productivity that we, we've got to feel like we're always contributing. We're always doing something that is productive. And we find our sense of, um, our sense of value, our sense of worth, our sense of identity in what we accomplish. And so we live these driven, busy lives. And we don't really like to admit it. I, I don't like to stand up here and admit it. And yet I have to. I think that's, that's part of my job sometimes is standing up here admitting things I'd rather not. We, we have to admit that sometimes we find that our busyness is equivalent to our importance. That, that, that we sometimes relish in our busyness because it makes us feel important. And I so often have this kind of exchange with people where people say, hey, Barry, how are you doing? And my reply is, I'm busy. And whether I like to admit it or not, sometimes that's my way of saying, I'm really important. Like, how would that feel if you came up to me? Hey, Barry, how are you doing? I'm important, right? <laughs> And yet I have to be honest that sometimes this is what's going on inside of me. My sense of, uh, of worth, of, of value, of importance is connected to my busyness, my productivity, my contribution. And it's hard for me to give up on that busyness, to step out of that contribution and to enter into silence, solitude. Contribution, second, Consumption. Consumption. We, we live in a consumerist society that, that wants to form us and shape us, right? We said from the beginning of this series, you're always either being conformed or transformed. Conformed to the patterns of this world. And one of those patterns is the pattern of consumerism. That we get our sense of identity, of worth, of value by what we consume, by, by what we purchase, by what we acquire. And our sense of acquiring more resources to acquire more stuff. And that's a pattern that the world wants to press us into. Uh, I, I'm a boot guy. I, I love a good pair of boots. Cap-toed, lace-up boots. I love a good pair of boots. But I've been wearing this pair for a while. They're kind of beat up, worn out. And, uh, and, and I have had this uh, kind of pain in the arch of my left foot. So I was thinking one day, I need a new pair of boots. And somehow, Facebook knew I was thinking that, Right? <laughs> Somehow Facebook read my mind. So I get a, an ad for a, a cool pair of boots. I mean, just my style on, on Facebook. And, and then I make the egregious error of actually clicking on the ad, right? So I click on the ad for the boots. And now what's always constantly just pervading my Facebook feed. It's ads for boots. So I'm barraged by these ads for these great new boots, some of them outside of my price range. And, and yet finally I break down, I buy a pair of boots. I got a new pair of boots. But this time Facebook doesn't know that I bought a pair of boots. And so Facebook is still sending me more and more ads for boots. And guess what I want more and more of? Boots. 
And that's just one silly example of the way in which the world wants to press us into this mold of a sense of identity, a sense of value, a sense of worth that's tied up in what we acquire and acquiring more resources so that we can acquire more stuff. Contribution, consumption, and then third, control. And uh, this one is just too convicting, so we're not actually going to talk about it. So let's just keep (laughs) moving, right? Um, uh, I remember a a few years back, I was studying one of those personality uh, tools, kind of helps you understand how you are prone to to operate in different situations. And so um, I geek out over those things. And I was reading this one, and it it talked about the way my personality type responds in the midst of stress and insecurity, and it had a list of different kind of ways that, that people like me respond in stress and insecurity. And at the top of the list was this little phrase, this, the two words connected by a hyphen, hypervigilant. And it just got me. The, uh, the synonym for hypervigilant is control freak, right? <laughs> so there's some days that I walk in and I'm feeling healthy and secure and my staff encounter Pastor Barry Kind, caring, approachable Pastor Barry. And then there's other days where they get Dr. Control Freak, right? <laughs> because for many of us, we, we find ourselves so desirous to maintain what is ultimately the illusion of control. And for us to, to take a break from the world is to give up contribution, consumption, and control, to to withdraw from the chaos of the world and enter into the quiet place with God. Why do we fail to do that? Well, often because of the noise, the external noise of the world around us. But, But then there's another reason, and that is the internal noise. You know what I'm talking about? The internal noise that just sort of incessant, like things that are rumbling around in your head, things that you're thinking about, you're spinning thoughts sometimes, that, that bubbling cauldron of anxiety that many of us just spend our time stirring, stirring. And so be really quiet. Those internal noises get really loud sometimes. Sometimes it's mere distraction. Like this morning, in preparing for the message, I, I, I wanted to just sit down before I opened my computer, before I started polishing the sermon. I just wanted to enter into a time of silence before God. And it wasn't very long into that at all before I started thinking about a conversation that I needed to have, uh, an email that I needed to reply to, and, and just found myself just distracted and just had to continue to, to bring myself back and posture myself before God. And that's normal. That's natural. That's part of our entering into this experience of silence. God, God knows that we're easily distracted, especially in the kind of culture that we live in. But each of those Moments of distraction is just an opportunity for us once again to present ourselves before God. But sometimes that inner noise is the voice of shame. Sometimes we fail to enter into that quiet place. We fail to enter into silence and solitude because we're not sure what we're going to find there. We're afraid of what we're going to find there. We're afraid to really face God to really face ourselves before God. Marjorie Thompson captures it this way. She said, our twisted inner logic, often unconscious, can convince us 
that we are too bad even for God to forgive. To hold God's mercy hostage in a determination to punish ourselves is a truly human sickness of spirit. God, God's mercy wants to meet us in the silence. And yet we listen to the voice of shame. And therefore we, we reject that space. We don't enter in. We don't receive God's mercy because the voice of shame has had its way in our lives. The invitation is to enter into silence, to meet God there, to meet his mercy in that place. And we can know from the scriptures that his mercies are new for us each and every morning. That we can never exhaust his mercy. That we can never out his grace. That he just wants to meet us in that quiet place. Apply his mercy and grace to our lives again. Now, it's important to point out that uh, sometimes what happens with that inner voice of shame is that rather than entering into silence and solitude, we enter into isolation. And there's a massive gulf between silence and solitude and isolation. But as our team was processing this week, Crystal, our worship pastor, was just talking about the ways in which she can sometimes actually find herself convinced that she's engaging in silence and solitude when really what she's doing is isolating. But just the recognition that God works in silence and solitude, but the enemy works in isolation. And so, what does it cost us? What does it cost us when we fail to enter in? When we just get caught up in the chaos of our lives, where where we don't ever drown out those inner voices. Well, a number of years ago, I was uh, attending a a conference. I was leading a a spiritual retreat for a group of Christian leaders. I was there with a colleague. We were leading that experience together. And and she opened our time together. And as we sat there in silence, just a group of us sitting together in silence, there was just this, this thought that immediately came to the surface that said, I'm not ready and it wasn't my content. I, I, I had my content down. It wasn't my content that wasn't ready. It was my soul that wasn't ready. That, that I wasn't really ready to stop and enter that silence. This was in that season of my life where I was full-time at the seminary and basically full-time here as well. And, and things were just crazy. And I hadn't stopped. I hadn't slowed down. I hadn't entered the silence. And now I was there and I just felt like I wasn't ready. A little later in that same retreat, my colleague read a list of what she called the symptoms of soul neglect from Mindy Caliguire's book on soul care. And as she read that list, I realized that it described me, the symptoms of soul neglect, self-absorption, check, shame, check, apathy, check, toxic anger, Check. Physical fatigue. Check. Isolation. Stronger temptation to sin. Drivenness. Feelings of desperation. Panic. Insecurity. Callousness. A judgmental attitude. Cynicism. A lack of desire for God. Check. 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 I realized that I was batting a thousand. I realized that I was suffering the symptoms of soul neglect 
from having not withdrawn from the chaos of life and entered into the quiet place with God. But then she went on to read from that same book, the signs of soul health. The signs of soul health, love and joy, compassion, giving and receiving grace, generosity of spirit, peace, the ability to trust, discernment, humility, creativity, vision, balance, focus. Let me ask you, which one of those lists sounds better? (laughs) It's pretty clear, isn't it? The symptoms of soul neglect are the signs of soul health. But, but here's what we have to acknowledge. We choose. We choose. Now certainly there are, are times and seasons and, and circumstances that conspire against us. And yet, in many respects, we choose whether we will um, stay stuck in soul neglect or whether we will pursue soul health. And part of that pursuit involves withdrawing from the chaos of the world and entering into silence and solitude, meeting God there. Now, as we wrap up this morning, I want to just give you just a couple of very practical suggestions. If you're hearing this and realizing, Barry, you're describing my reality but you're also describing something that I really want. Just a couple of practical suggestions. First, pick a place. Pick a place that's your quiet place, right? Your solitary place. I have, uh, when I want a longer time of silence and solitude, I have a couple of different places. One that I go that's just this beautiful church that I can sit in for extended period of time. Nobody's gonna bother me. Another one is a outdoor place. It's a place that I go back to again and again that's right along the edge of the lake. And it can just be a quiet place. But, but most days... It's not that long. Most days it's shorter and most days it's just at my desk in my home office with my cup of coffee when the house is quiet, just spending that time in silence with the Lord. I know of one woman who was a mother of young children and her, her quiet place was actually on the floor in her walk-in closet. It's a place she could shut the door and just be by herself for a little while. But I would just say to you, pick a place. Yeah, I hear some applause for that one in the room, right? Yeah, but, but, but pick a place that's going to be your quiet place to meet with God. And then second, make a plan. Make a plan for how you're going to engage in this practice of silence and solitude and prayer. And uh, one simple approach, if you're not uh, really accustomed to that time of silence, solitude and prayer... Um, first off is just to start small. Start small, but work your way up to longer periods of, of, of just being silent with the Lord. But, but maybe to begin with just two minutes of silence, just presenting yourself to God in quiet for two minutes. For some, those first two minutes are going to feel like an awfully long time just to be quiet. Two minutes of silence and then to engage with the scriptures, a, a psalm or a story of Jesus from the gospels. Just one psalm, one story of Jesus. And just to allow that to, to stir inside of you. Then enter into two more minutes of silence. Just to be silent before the Lord with those thoughts on your mind. And then to conclude the time of prayer. Just a, a first step in disengaging from the chaos of life. And entering into the quiet place to meet with God. Because one of the great truths of the gospel is that we have direct access to God 
that he has invited us into a personal, even intimate relationship with him. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how to join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org.